Um, just before we get into the sermon this morning, um, I just wanted to say a couple of words about some of the events that unfolded yesterday in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, as a Christian leader watching these things unfold yesterday at this Unite the Right rally, uh, which saw white nationalists, neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klan members, um, they've been labeled as the alt-right, and their call for taking back America, I found that to be exceptionally sad that our country is in that place, and especially that things turn violent towards murder. Um, as a white evangelical, let me just say that this type of attitude is completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. It is an abomination to all that we stand for as Christians, and in the church of Jesus Christ, it should be condemned at every level. There is no room for this, and I want to say this too as a Christian, because of my commitment to represent Jesus by loving the world the way that Jesus loves the world, I stand together with those who have received hate due to their ethnic background, racial background, or any other type of hate that they have received, and um, just want you to know that you are loved and cared for and the church is a place for you. Can I pray? Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer because we know that you are the only one who can heal all of the brokenness in this world. Lord, no amount of activism or tweeting can replace our need for prayer. And prayer will provide us with wisdom and clarity uh, when you do call us to act, Lord, because I do believe that you call your church to speak out. Please comfort those who mourn today, especially the families who have lost loved ones. Be with those who have experienced bigotry, hate, discrimination, and only feel more deeply concerned for their livelihood and safety as a result of these emboldened individuals who feel the need to sow seeds of discord and hate based upon racial identity. Lord, I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the strongest denunciation of racism. We approach the cross on level ground. Uh, no matter what ethnic background we come from, what social class, what language we speak, whether male or female, it doesn't matter. In Christ, we are all equal. We all have intrinsic worth and value. His death pays for the sins of all who trust in him. And we worship you, the God who shows no partiality. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, I am so grateful that your holiness and your character shines forth through your word. And Lord, in light of you, all matters in this earth are made much smaller. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. If you not have a copy of God's Word, you can open up uh, a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn it to page 406, and uh, you will pick up with us in our text this morning. Nehemiah chapter 10, blue Bible in the chair in front of you, page 406. Commitment. We're going to talk about commitment this morning. 
said it once, I'll say it again. For some people, it's a dirty word. You listen to the definition of commitment, and you see why it doesn't really resonate with our culture today, an engagement or obligation that restricts freedom or action. That sounds scary, doesn't it? You've probably heard of commitment phobia. You know, we hear of it often in regards to the dating arena, people who can't commit to relationships because they get too deep. But people also struggle with this in other areas of life, too. Individuals um, experience commitment issues, whether it be mental distress or emotional difficulty, when faced with any situation that requires dedication to a long-term goal. People also struggle with um, just avoiding pinning themselves down. So they might not be a commitment phobe, but they want to kind of keep their option open, be free to do what they want, move as the wind blows, so to speak. Well, they have an app for that now. That's right. There is an app so you can make legitimate excuses to avoid those naggy, smaller commitments. Uh, Your friend is moving Saturday. Are you free to help? The real answer is yes. But the honest answer is no, because you're a human being and not a forklift. And so if you had something else planned, well, it would be easier to say no, wouldn't it? Well, there's this app, got this thing, um, and the app uses your phone's location to populate your Google Calendar with local stuff that's happening, like the upcoming Parks Department tree census that you just had to be a part of. You click on the Get Busy button, and in an instant, your blank schedule turns into a confetti of all kinds of things that you have to do. Now, the creator of the app says that, yes, this can be used as a potential tool for finding new things, but he says don't get the purpose uh, minced with the secondary, or the primary purpose. It's for people who want to avoid doing things. Besides just being outright deceptive, the app also demonstrates our modern predilection towards a lack of commitment. Now, what happens when you have a laissez-faire attitude with commitment? Nothing, (laughs) right? Well, at least I would say nothing of significance happens. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 10. This is why this text is so important. I want to give you a little bit of the background. Remember, we have been um, dividing the book of Nehemiah kind of into two big parts. Chapters 1 through 6, rebuilding the wall. Chapter 7 through 13, rebuilding the people. Chapter 7 began with rebuilding through community. Chapter 8 then came with rebuilding with the word of God. And as the people were exposed to the person of God through the word of God, they realized that they had a history of unfaithfulness to the covenant of God. Now, a covenant is a firm commitment. And so in Nehemiah 9, it leads the people to confess their unfaithfulness to God, but also to remember that there is a way back to God because as they looked at the word of God, they saw a God who is great, a God who is good, and a God who is long-suffering towards their sin. But it's one thing to say that you want to make a change and to confess. It's another thing to put those words into action, to form a plan, to commit to change. So, as we saw last week, a part of confession is a decision to make a commitment. 
Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38 says this, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So Nehemiah 10 is the signing of this document, and it's the names of those included who put their names on it. I want to draw your attention as we read this passage to some principles on commitment and explain to you why commitment is so important for the spiritual life. We'll begin in verse 1 through 27 with the principle that commitment calls for personal investment. Let's read that text together. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Melchizedek, Hattash, uh, Shebaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathan, Barak, Meshulam, Abijah, Majamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua the son of Azaniah, Benui, of the sons of Hinnadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalata, Kalaita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Benai, Benu, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parash, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Benai, Asgad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hadiah, Hashem, Bazai, Harif, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, uh, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, uh, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashab, Halohash, Pilha, Shobek, Raham, Hashbanah, uh, Maasiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Haram, Baana. Whoa. <laughs> and, I, and I just want to assure you that was not well done. Now, as we come to a list of names and ask ourselves, why are we reading this right now in God's Word? We have no personal attachment or involvement with these people, and obviously we can hardly pronounce their names. Alistair Begg shares an illustration. He says it's like walking through a cemetery and understanding that the names represented on the gravestone had some significance and the names matter in some ways. But as you walk past those names, you don't feel any particular sentimental attachment to the people within the grave, do you? Now, if you were to walk into the cemetery and see a woman kneeling before the grave, weeping uh, in front of the grave, you would say to yourself, well, she has some type of personal association with this person. And if you saw me in front of the same gravestone doing the same thing, you would say, he's crazy. Now, I say all this to say something to us, though, as we cross through the, the who's who's list of the Bible. To someone, these names did matter. I assure you, someone wept when Malik died. The Malik of verse 27. Malik mattered. 
In fact, the the point to make is that every name on the list matters. These people lived lives. They held down jobs. They had kids that they lost sleep over. They loved. And in many respects, these people are no different from you. They are ordinary people. Ordinary people that God used to do extraordinary things. Now, maybe you're waiting Uh, for something extraordinary to happen in your life or for you to become extraordinary before you set out on God's mission. I know what the thought process is like. Well, you know, if just these five things would change about me, maybe if I became a little more winsome, maybe if I knew the Bible a little bit better and, and could recall scripture after scripture or whatever, I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. The one thing I will say to you is that if you're waiting to become extraordinary to be used by God, you're going to be waiting a long time. Because God doesn't need you to be extraordinary. He needs you to be obedient and committed. I believe that is what is so significant about this list. It's a group of leaders amongst the people that said, I'm willing to put skin in the game. I'm willing to personally invest my life to ensure that the mission of God will carry forward, that we will be rebuilt as a people. And so here, they're rebuilding with commitment. Now, who's the first name on the list? Name numero uno. Nehemiah. Isn't that interesting? The list contains some 84 other names, 21 priests, 17 lead Levites, 44 heads of homes. However, the name that sets off the list is Nehemiah. I want you to think about something. Can you think of anyone leading without commitment? I can't. Leadership and commitment seem to go hand in hand. Leaders are in the business of commitment, aren't they? I see that as a leadership principle. Leadership principle, one million. <laughs> Leaders make and keep commitments. Leaders make and keep commitments. A famous leader in American culture for leading a list with his name is none other than John Hancock, the name that has become synonymous with the signature. Now, in uh, July 4th, 1776, the Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence. So while these guys were off signing their names, putting their name, reputation, and yes, their livelihood and even their very lives on the risks, we celebrate the same day today by lighting off illegal fireworks pretty darn similar when I think about it in risk. Now, as the president of the Continental Congress, Hancock was the first signer, and his signature was the most prominent and stylish. According to legend, that big old name was uh, put into the middle just like that because he wanted the king of England not to need his glasses to see that his name was on the list. Commitment calls for personal investment. With Nehemiah out front, these 84 leaders are leading the charge. They're saying, we're not going to just talk about following God. We're going to commit to it. How about you? Do you have skin in the game? What does it look like to have skin in the game? 
Well, I think the next principle is one of the many indicators that demonstrates this fact to us. Commitment involves separation, verses 28 and 29 in the text. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, um, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. I love to see in verse 28 how the people follow the lead of the leaders. It's an indicator that you're a leader, isn't it? If you look behind you and no one's behind you, you're not a leader. If you look behind you and there's one person behind you following, you're a leader. Whether or not your intentions are good, that's a different story. But you are a leader. What does it um, mean to be separated? Did you notice that, that there were two basic um, identifiers of these people? They separated themselves. They had a knowledge and understanding of what they were doing. Basically, they knew what they were doing and why they were doing it. Now, when I hear that word separate, it, it kind of repulses me a little bit. I don't really like the sound of that word. Isn't that an intolerant attitude? Isn't it a touch bigoted? The word separation in the Hebrew text does mean to divide or to separate. But the purpose of the separation is this. It's a total devotion to God, no matter the cost. A total devotion to God, no matter the cost. So the Israelites understood that their devotion to God revolved all aspects of their life. It involved their religious life. It involved their social life, including their love life. It also involved their business life, the way that they dealt in business, who they were willing to deal in business with. There was no aspect of their life that was compartmentalized away from God. The law of God instructed the Israelites to be loving neighbors, to care for the foreigner. However, it was very clear that they were not to live like the foreigner. We have a very similar expression of this in the New Testament. Do not love the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The apostle says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what does this entail for these people? Well, we'll get specific with that in a moment. But for now, just understand that separation is total commitment to God motivated by love. It's a balanced decision. You're separating from something to something. So the Jews separated from the peoples around them and to the Lord in his word. They knew that a divided commitment was really no commitment at all. Now think about that if you're married with respect to what you did at marriage. You separated yourself unto your spouse. 
I've shared this illustration before, but I think it's very fitting. You know, the second best day of my life was when I got married. Uh, the first best day was when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I remember standing at the aisle and just feeling so sorry for all the women of the world as Katie walked down that aisle. <laughs> two reasons, two reasons. The first was because, in my mind, she was a cut above. The second reason was, well, because I was off the market. Now, I've grown to understand that I guess the ladies of the world don't feel as badly about that as I did at the time. That day I said yes to Katie, I was also saying no, right, to other romantic attachments. I wasn't just saying no sexually to other women, but I was saying no in terms of separating myself from flirty conversations, unhealthy emotional attachments, dates. Now some people might look at that decision and say, well boy, isn't that pretty narrow-minded? I mean, wouldn't you be happier without keeping your options open? And my response is, no. <laughs> I done married good. Barry Cooper asks the question, might the intoxication of choice lead to the death of commitment and contentment? He cites psychologist Barry Schwartz, author of The Paradox of Choice, who argues that a large array of options may diminish the attractiveness of what people actually choose. That's why when you walk into Starbucks and someone orders their coffee at 140 degrees, now you want yours at 140 degrees. The reason being that thinking about, I'm sorry, no one here actually goes to Starbucks, do they? It's Dunkin' Donuts. The reason being that thinking about the attractions of some of the unchosen options detracts from the, the pleasure derived from the chosen one. Might that be why some people are not finding their joy and their happiness in Christ? Maybe they haven't separated themselves unto him. Maybe they're kind of still playing the field, so to speak, instead of wholly committing to him. But as we're, it turns out from psychological research, but more importantly from the word of God, divided commitment's no commitment at all. Let's look at another principle. Commitment requires specificity. Uh, as we read verse 29, you saw the general commitment. The general commitment was to obey God's word. And then as you move forward in verses 30 and onward, the specifics of the commitment um, get more clear to us. They do not enumerate every law of God, do they, in this covenant? They speak of specific laws that I believe the people of this day and age were breaking. Isn't it important to be clear and specific? What happens when we're vague in general with our language? Well, it tends to lead to loose follow-through. I actually make the point when I'm conducting uh, marriages, that couples should read the traditional wedding vows together. Listen to the specificity of the traditional vow. I, John, take you, Susan, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. And to you I pledge my faith. 
And while you read the I do portion of the vows, you also commit to forsake all others. Very clear. Very specific. Until death do us part, the permanence of the marriage. Forsaking all others, the exclusivity of the marriage. Well, why do I insist on this? Because generally speaking, when a rule has been formed, it's because somewhere along the way, someone got burned, right? I remember sitting in a ceremony where someone was reading vows and they said, dear so-and-so, I can't remember the names involved, it was very mushy, I love you more than anything. You make me feel so good. I promise I'll stay with you for as long as I can and I hope this works out. (laughs) What? I'm sitting there asking, does that count? And that's the problem. Vague language leads to uncertainty and loose follow-through. This is why rental agreements need to be clear, employment contracts, and all kinds of other things. Specific. So what were they specific about? Well, three things. Verse 30, they were specific about how they would conduct marriage. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our our sons. See, the law of God did not allow Israelites to marry non-Israelites. Exodus 34, 12 explains the heart. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, and it becomes a snare in your midst. Now, the law was not on racial grounds. It was on religious grounds. That's why Ruth the Moabitess is in the lineage of Jesus. When you read the book of Ruth, no one says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Boaz, you can't marry Ruth. She's a foreigner. No, because in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, Ruth committed to Naomi and said, your God is now my God. So why was this so important, and why is it important for us today I'm just going to be very brief here. But the family is the basic social unit of our society. It's where children are reared, where they learn right from wrong, develop skills and habits, and prayerfully learn to know God and to want to walk with God for a lifetime. Marriage is the bedrock of the family. So that in Genesis 2.24, we learn that a new home forms when a man leaves his father and his mother and holds fast to his wife and the two become one flesh. One author says this, this one fleshness speaks to a union of all we are. Such one fleshness, union, is impossible without agreement on who God is and what it means to know and to worship him. Do you see why this is such an important commitment for them as a people? And why it's important for us as Christians? Now, some of us, when we hear the the prescribed biblical ideal of family, we say to ourselves, well, I I don't meet up to that. You know, my life has taken such a shape that there's just no going back. I'm not going to be able to, my family's not going to be able to look like that. Whether it be through divorce or how you were raised personally, I don't know what it is. But the one thing I do want to say is that God takes us where we're at. And whenever there's a principle that we see in the Bible, even if our life doesn't completely meet up with it, I think there's two important things to remember. The first is that the principle is the ideal. 
It's God's best for humanity. The second is that we should orient our lives so that the principle can be reachieved, whether in our own time or in the time of our children. Let's look at the second commitment they made. They committed to observing the spirit of the Sabbath, verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh uh, year and the exaction of every debt. Now, the purpose of the Sabbath in their day and age was designed for rest, so that they wouldn't be kind of endless cogs in a machine going and working and going and working. And, you know, the type of stuff that just zaps all the joy out of life. God understood that we're embodied creatures. That we need times to recharge the battery. But the Sabbath and the Sabbath year are also important marker points in their time to declare trust in God. See, if you practice and take a day to rest, you're trusting God that he will prosper your six-day week enough to take you through seven. If you believe in the Sabbath year, or if you practice this as an Israelite, the Sabbath year, which I would say we don't practice anymore today, it was a bigger deal for them. That seventh year was a trustment to God saying that I believe that you will take care of me and my family through the course of this time where we've let the ground lie fallow. And they also, you see there, agreed to forgive debts. Now, we're not talking about a little trust fall here, are we? You know, if trust fall goes wrong, you have a bruised bum and maybe a bruised ego. But this, this is trusting God with their livelihood. Now, let me just say, it was a hard commitment for these people because they've known hard times. They knew what it was like to be hungry, to wish that there was food on the table and not have it. Now, It's easy to find loopholes to laws, isn't it? The exiles had one when it came to the Sabbath. Yes, God's law says we can't work, but it never said that we can't have others work for us. And that's why they're getting pretty specific there in verse 31. They're not going to let the peoples of the lands bring in the goods. They're saying we want to follow the heart of the law or the spirit of this law. It's easy to fall into that spirituality trap. Jesus really contended with that in the Sermon on the Mount. He had the statements of, you have heard that it was said, and then he would come back with the spirit of the law. So you have heard uh, that it was said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God doesn't want some kind of rigid exterior obligatory type of commitment to him. He wants heartfelt commitment. He wants you to love him. Thirdly, they committed to say no to neglect to God's house. That's verses 32 through 39. Um, You can actually summarize this whole section in verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. Um, As I've made my way through these verses, 32 to 39, I've circled in my Bible the house of the Lord or the house of God no less than nine times. That's the big theme here. What does it mean to neglect something? 
uh, to fail to care for it properly, to not pay proper attention to it, or to fail to do something when you know you ought to do it. Look up on the screen, there's a picture of neglect. That's what it looks like. Well, that person did not walk into that house, drop a match, and destroy it. I would submit to you that the same result was achieved. The house is not fit to live in. Neglect is a series of apathetic choices. You can neglect your relationship with God. You can neglect your relationship with your spouse, with your family. You can neglect serving others. And in all instances, the result is the same, destructive, decay over time. Solomon recognized this in Proverbs 24. He said, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone walls were broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Their commitment to the work of the temple was a decisive no to neglect. They were essentially saying, we believe that God's work is our responsibility. This is our spiritual house. It's going to look immaculate. There's not going to be cobwebs in the corner. Uh, There's not going to be disrepair. We're not going to see skinny priests walking around. I love several of the aspects of the commitment that stand out to me. Uh, They viewed their responsibility as ongoing. Look at verses 32 and 33. Uh, They would give a third of a shekel on an annual basis for the ongoing needs of the ministry. They didn't stop giving because the work and the regular care wouldn't stop needing attention. They saw that accountability was important. Look at verse 34. They actually assigned someone the responsibility of carrying the wood into the temple. You've probably heard the phrase, what is everybody's business is nobody's business. They prioritized God's work. In verses 35 to 37, you notice the word first all over the place. First fruit, firstborn, first of their goods. Priorities, right? God gets the best. He gets off the top. He doesn't get the leftovers. Now let's bring this into the realm of the Christian. I see a principle here when it comes to Christian giving. Their giving was a planned, systematic, cheerful, off-the-top demonstration that God has first place in their hearts. Does he have first place in your heart? And when you consider the fact that we don't have a physical temple that we care for, we do have the ongoing work of the ministry, the ongoing work of the local church. This includes caring for this beautiful 180-year-old building. Isn't that so cool? People entrusted their finances to see this building raised up from the ground. And we're sitting here hearing the word preached 180 years later. I think that's cool. Providing salaries for ministry workers resourcing ministries so that they're operating off of optimum capacity, investing by faith and future growth, sending resources worldwide. 
Now, I'm saying this to members. If you're a member of this church, are you keeping that commitment to upkeep this place? When people step into this building in the next 180 years, should the Lord not return, what are they going to find? A house that's decaying due to neglect? Or a place that's alive and flourishing because we've poured into it? Fourth principle. Commitment carries risk. Maybe that's the part of commitment that we're afraid of. Inherent with commitment is risk. For these post-exiles, each law that they committed to uphold required trust in God. Why did marriage require trust? Well, for them, marriage was economical. It provided upward mobility. Um, We've already talked about the Sabbath. I think you can understand why giving, prioritizing giving, would be risky. What are some of the risks we face when we commit to be obedient to God? Well, I'd submit to you we risk looking out of touch. We risk our love life. We risk being less marketable. If I make Sunday a priority, then I'm less marketable into the seven-day workweek world. We risk our time and our finances. We risk losing control. But just let me say this. Betting on God is not like betting on some shaky startup company in the stock market. You know, the thing that you think could flourish but not, might, might not flourish so that when you're putting the money in, there's a knot in your stomach and you're wondering, is this really going to work out? No, in fact, in Malachi 3.10, I believe God dares us to trust him. Now, to the people of Israel, this meant for them to give the tithe. They said, bring the full tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, I don't read that verse to mean that if you give 10 bucks into the offering today, you go home and your bank account has a thousand mysteriously. Um, I don't think that that's what the text is talking about. But I am saying that you will be a blessing or you will be blessed when you trust God with your life, including your finances. Blessing is God's favor. It's his steady watch care over your life. Betting on God is not betting on the stock market. No, betting on God's like betting on the one who knows all things, decides all things, and controls all things. Sounds like a pretty good bet to me. Carl Truitt, or Truitt Cathy, excuse me, the founder of and CEO of Chick-fil-A took this bet many years ago. Now, he had a policy that he initiated at the beginning that they would close their stores on Sunday. For him, it was a theological conviction. I know that some Christians don't share that conviction. But in a press release, he explains this commitment and why they have maintained it over the years. It says, from the time he opened his first restaurant in 1946, he has made his closed on Sunday policy as much a part of Chick-fil-A brand as the original Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. Over the years, many have questioned the sanity of this decision. But Kathy answers challengers by saying closing on Sunday is one of the best decisions he has ever made. The closed on Sunday policy is reflected in the company's corporate purpose. To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. To have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. 
That sounds like someone who's leading where they are, doesn't it? Kathy believes being closed on Sunday says two important things to people. First, that there must be something special about the way that Chick-fil-A views spiritual life. And two, that there must be something special about how Chick-fil-A feels about its people. The press release continues, in today's business world, the closed on Sunday policy may seem to be a costly commitment, but as a company's sales figures have consistently proven, Chick-fil-A generates more business per square foot in six days than many other quick service restaurants produce in seven. It's pretty cool. Like I said, I don't think everyone needs to make that commitment. But it's cool that he sensed that God was calling him to, that he was leading where he is, and he chose to do it. Now, as we close, I believe that Nehemiah 10 is showing us an important big idea. If you want to be used greatly by God, you must make a decisive choice to wholly surrender to him. This idea made me think of a study I read about in a book by David Brooks called The Social Animal. And it He cites a researcher who explored the question, why do some musicians excel while others remain mediocre? I mean, that's a great question. Why can Josiah shred the guitar and I can't? Well, in 1997, a researcher followed along 157 randomly selected children as they picked out and learned an instrument. Some of them went on to be excellent musicians and others, well, not so good. The researcher searched for traits that led to success, and you know what was surprising? IQ really didn't make a difference. Neither did having a so-called ear, or math skills, or income level of the family, or a sense of rhythm. Hmm. The single best indicator of excellence was the response to a simple question that he asked initially. How long do you think you will play? The students who planned to play for a few years had modest success, but some children said, in effect, I want to be a musician. I'm going to play my whole life. Those children soared. What led to excellence? A long-term commitment. That's why... Eugene Peterson's definition of discipleship resonates with me so deeply. Discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Have you done that? Have you made a long-term commitment to wholly surrender your life to God? Would you bow your heads with me in prayer?